Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 429. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. Our partnership with Florist Review is such a valuable one, providing a forum for beautiful and inspiring editorial content in the Slow Flowers Journal section, month after month. Thanks to Florist Review, you can now order a subscription for yourself and give one as a gift this holiday season. Set your 2020 intention to enrich your personal and professional development. You can find the buy one, gift one special offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com. Or you can also find the show notes for today's episode 429. Our first sponsor thanks goes to Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. Look for the American flag icon to find Syndicate's USA-made products and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. 50 States of Slow Flowers continues today with a visit to Vermont. We are quickly working our way through the A to Z alphabetical list of U.S. states, and it has been such a fabulous experience to bring you along with me. I've been wanting to spend time with Liz Creek of Maple Flower Farm based in Bethel, Vermont, and much earlier this year I asked Liz if she would be my Vermont guest on this series, and of course she agreed. So I expected to record the interview long distance, as I sometimes need to do. But to my surprise, I ran into Liz at Holly Chapel's Flower Stock Conference in mid-October. So we set aside time during a break to record this interview. What I expected was to be a quick 15-minute conversation soon expanded into nearly an hour-long interview. So today, it's all Liz and all Vermont flowers. Here's a bit more about Liz Creek. Liz began growing fresh-cut flowers in 1989 in Vermont. She was a total early adopter to cut flower growing. Early on, she enthusiastically accepted an invitation to be the founding president of the Vermont Cut Flower Council. Liz says, and she quotes, I was the point girl for every farmer in the state who wanted to get rich quick. She continues, the flurry lasted about two to four years and local fresh cuts were a hard sell back then. None of the florists were ready to trust local grown. Out of the numerous wannabe flower farmers, only two of the original members are still in business today. The Vermont Cut Flower Council folded. Most growers eventually gave up growing flowers and I was one of them. At the time, Liz was a young mother, a degreed horticulturist, and out of need, she put her knowledge into building a successful landscape enterprise complete with greenhouses, which she owned and operated for 20 years. Liz sold that business, and she has turned her focus to her burgeoning home gardens. Flowers have always been key to her happiness. Then she says this, It was C.S. Lewis who said, You are never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. In Liz's case, it was dreaming an old dream. 
She was casting about for the next reinvention and realized that her fondest memories were and are the pink dew-laden mornings when she was picking armloads of flowers. Yes, it sounds romantic, but it is proven. And Liz says she is not faint of heart when it comes to hard work. She's earned the right to put a little fairy dust on flowers if she wishes. Today, Liz grows fresh cut flowers in abundance. She is working this good earth with harmless inputs and sustainable methods. The flowers shine brilliantly. The birds and bees are happy. What more is there? Well, you will enjoy this beautiful conversation and be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode at DebraPrinzing.com, where I also will share links to Maple Flower Farm's social places so you can find and follow Liz Creek. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast, and today I am so excited to continue our 50 States of Slow Flowers series. We're coming to an end. We're in Vermont, and I'm so excited to have a face-to-face, in-person interview with Liz Creek of Maple Flower Farm. Hi, Liz. Hi there. How are you? I'm great. We've just been partying for... 48 hours at Flower Stock. Flower Stock 2019. <laughs> and we got here and I said, Liz, let's do the podcast now. Awesome. Because we've been planning it. But yes. It would have been over Skype. We're such busy girls. Yes. It's great. <laughs> um, I am curious, by the way, what prompted you to come to Flower Stock? Because Vermont isn't very close to Virginia and you made a little excursion out of it. I have had my eye on Holly Chapel forever. Yeah. And I had intended to actually come in and do an independent individual class with her. Okay. Because I'm at this place of trying to figure out, do I really want to reach out and do floral design mm-hmm. for weddings and events? And I'm a little, uh, you know, a little nervous about it. So I thought, I, who better? Right. But, but Holly. But, you know, we both had problems that that family issues came up and yeah. I just couldn't do it. So when I saw flower stock being advertised, I said, here I am. And I that's so cool. Enrolled. Love and it. and I've, we're going to jump right in and talk about Maple Flower Farm. One of them is I want you to give us a snapshot of your farm and tell us where it is. I'm guessing you've had your first frost, but I could be wrong. We have. Okay. So that kind of allowed you to get away also, right? Uh, yes. Yes. But, you know, I was digging dahlia tubers all week this week. Before and, you left. Yes. And then to make things even more austere for myself, I always I always divide mine in the fall because I don't have time in the spring to be dividing the tubers. So, And I don't like them when they're really hard after being stored. Because so you want to dig and divide at all in one Right action. away. Wow. Yeah. So I did quite a bit of it. I'm not finished yet. We had one hard frost, landed all of my outdoor dahlias. Now I go back and I work on my indoor dahlias. Okay, so, okay, so you have outdoor dahlias and indoor dahlias. Tell us about... Maple Flower Farm, and where you're located in Vermont, and the scale and size. All right, so I'm located right in the center of Vermont, the heart of Vermont, top to bottom, left to right, 25 minutes below Montpelier, the capital, 25 minutes above Woodstock. Wow. So it's easy to find on Route 89. It's Bethel. It is Bethel, okay. Vermont. Wow. And in fact, if you ever saw um, I Am Legend with Will Smith, that's where everybody was trying to get to because that was the place where these zombies couldn't couldn't, <laughs> couldn't uh, get in. So, so you feel very after safe. After he found the cure, <laughs> you know, his girlfriend, you know, made it to Bethel, Vermont. <laughs> 
So, yes, that's it. The end of the universe is going to be right there in Bethel, Vermont. And I'll be there to welcome everybody with flowers. I'll be and there, maple, too. maple syrup. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you're, we've told us where you're yep. located. What is, what is your farm all about? So, the farm itself is uh, about 16 acres of land, but I, we don't farm it because it's mostly woods. Okay. There's a very nice brook and waterfall there that rambles through the property, but it's mostly woods. So the homestead itself and the greenhouse area and the garden area probably is only comprised of a full, maybe an acre and a half of flat land. Now, there's no flat land in Vermont unless you get to the lake. So you've like claimed this little square. (laughs) One little ledge of of, uh, beautiful, beautiful buckland soil, which is some of the best soil there is. It's a fabulous loam with practically no rocks at all. So it's like butter. It's fabulous. So we've lived there now for over 20 years. I'd say we've been there probably 20, 21 years. And uh, I used to have a landscape firm. And I used to have greenhouses out in that flat area. And I used to grow all kinds of perennials for the landscape trade. Oh, okay. I've been in the green industry forever. So you were growing nursery stock, or or did you sell to landscape contractors? Both, both, because I had a a big business, a a landscape firm. Um, I was a a landscape design build. And uh, yeah, so I did that for a really long time. Anyway, we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. So I, I kind of etched out this one particular area that was sunny and lovely and close to the water. And I had at that time three greenhouses. I, I did sell the company and we got rid of all the greenhouses. Okay. And um, then I decided, you know what? I'm going to plant a vegetable garden for the first time ever in many, many years because I'm finally not, had not in the trade. Right. And I put one row, one four-foot wide by 40-foot row of zinnias. And that was the year that the uh, Queen Lime Red came out. And, of course, I also wanted uh, uh, some Oklahomas because I love Oklahomas above and beyond any of the giants. I don't really like giants so much for design. Anyway, the Oklahomas is a series, right? It is, and they're smaller, like two-inch round, the beautiful, perfect long stems, good to work with. So I I decided I'm going to grow myself some flowers and I'll have some zinnias, you know, for the butterflies because Mm. we didn't have many butterflies at that time. About four or five years ago, no monarchs. So I thought maybe if I do some zinnias. So the row suddenly started coming and I freaked out because I had zillions of zinnias. And I thought, what on earth was I thinking? What am I going to do? So I called a couple of friends of mine, people that I'd met that were florists. And the florists started coming out, and then they started demanding more and more. Before I knew it, I had four florists coming out, buying all the zinnias. And in that summer, in that one 40-foot by 4-foot wide row, I made $2,000. And I thought, hmm, okay. Yeah, and you weren't trying to sell your vegetables. That was just to feed Oh, no, the those were just for, the, just for us. Yeah. Tomatoes, you know, mostly tomatoes yeah. and basil. And um, zucchini. Anyway, that's crazy. That's what happened to me. And I, I have to do a little backstory. And that was that back in the very early 90s, I was the founding president of the Vermont Cut Flower Council because I started growing cut flowers back then. I had young children at oh home. Oh, my goodness. It was a long time ago. I was graduated as a horticulturist. Right. 
And, you know, I, I was growing cut flowers, but then NAFTA happened Mm -hmm. and the bottom fell out of the market. I couldn't sell enough flowers to save my life. And lo and behold, because I had a certain amount of, uh, good vibe out there. Mm-hmm. People were asking me because I was working at a state college in a horticulture program if I would come out and do consultations with them in their gardens. So I started selling all of the perennial stock out of my rows. And before I knew it, the landscaping came in and saved my life. Wow. I got customers, I developed a really nice a nice landscape firm. So, and I ran that for about 20 years. And very much a vertical business yeah. because you a lot of landscape firms don't grow their own stock. That's correct. And so you had that element. You probably weren't I've growing I've always everything. been a grower. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what my thing is is that I actually have a thing for unusual, hard-to-find plants. And back then, it was the fabulous hookahs that were coming out with golden colors and copper colors. Yeah. And I wanted to grow the types of things nobody had, the um, tetraploid uh, dahlias and lilies and pots and just incredible stuff. My biggest market, however, and where I really made my name was doing giant 17-inch uh, hanging baskets. Yes. So I, I was very much into proven winners, and I had numerous towns that I was doing the baskets oh, for. for like their main street. I did Hanover, New Hampshire, Woodstock, Vermont, Randolph, Vermont, Bethel, Vermont, Andover, Massachusetts asked me to grow baskets for them. Well, sort I also, of your thing. Right. Wow. And because I was linked to the Horticulture College, which was Vermont Technical College, you know, and because I had been the president of the Cut Flower, Cut Flower Council, my name had gotten out there. So before I knew it, I had garden clubs from all over New England asking me to come in and lecture about various things. My landscape firm focused predominantly on native, native gardens. Mm-hmm. So I had this entire, you know, lecture venue that I could offer people. Right. So I've been pretty busy, always in the green industry. And educating. Educating is definitely wow. one of my things. So I'm very geeky about what's unusual, what's new. I'm a researcher. I love finding out about things. I like to know how things tick. So, you know, by the time I had finished selling that row of zinnias, I said, I'm going to get back into cut flowers. I am going to do this. So I did a little bit of an input on my Google search and what should come up, but Aaron Benza came. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you. And Florette, yeah. And you. Yeah. Yeah. I was, it was like, oh my God, there's something going on. So that was You it. were such an early adopter. You were doing yeah. it before we were even like born. aware of some, some well, people. Before, probably before she was born, but definitely yeah. before I was interested right. in cut flowers. Yeah. I'm, what you, I'm, I'm like a granny. I'm a granny <laughs> of cut flowers, but really I got burned from NAFTA. Like so many American floral families, yeah. generations of people went down. Was it NAFTA or the Andean Trade Preference Agreement or both? It's both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically. The, just the demand for all local of that, flowers. Well, the, yeah. yeah, demand dropped because everything was coming in from South America dirt cheap. Yeah. And they were glorious year yeah. round. Yeah. Who wants to work with some piddly little, you know, oh, yeah. farmer? You know? Somebody up in Vermont where it's under, you're under snow half the year. Right. And back then, the trend was not having, you know, Cosmos and other really light and lovelies. It was going to be the big sumptuous roses and whatnot. Yeah, the kind of core, I always call it the dirty dozen. The dirty dozen, exactly. So now, just 
give us a picture of knowing your background in, in, in research mm-hmm. and your geekiness, you probably have a lot of varieties that you're growing. Actually not. Okay. No. One of the things That's that good I, discipline. I had a very specific goal when I started my flower farm and that was, I did not want to do farmer's markets. I have lots of friends that do farmer's markets. I watched the whole Thursday through Saturday night run at the farmer's market. And I think it's too exhausting. Yeah. Um, I also did not want to do CSAs because I can't see myself with piles of flowers doing bouquet after bouquet. Another late night endeavor. Exactly. Didn't want to do that. So I thought, what do I want to do? And I thought, I want to sell to high end designers. Mm -hmm. So that is my, that's my market. I sell to no one but high end designers. Um, I selected my, and I still do select my high end designers. Well, I, I find people that I, I watch them yeah. on Instagram. I decide, oh, there's someone whose work I really admire and someone that I know will appreciate my material. Wow. And then I reach out to them. And I haven't been turned away yet. Well, we, we have, we're here with Jason Munn, who right. is a Vermont, uh, Burlington area designer. Yes. And he jokingly said that you like chose him to, and, and that he was approved as a buyer. For, for his floral design business, and I didn't know he was joking or not. Well, who wouldn't approve Jason Munn? <laughs> of course. He's, you know, he's a darling person. But there's people in that space, that wedding and event space, who are independent designers who have an aesthetic that you're pers- you kind of select and or do. or do business with. And it has to make sense. I mean, it helps a lot if they're on my delivery routes. Yeah. So I have delivery routes, and, um, you know... I'll do three or four people on that route and, and bang. Well, I'm being done. in the middle of the state, are you like going in every like direction of the compass? So it's really easy. I go north and then I go south. Okay. And then sometimes I segue towards the Boston area. Mm. You know, I've mm. got a couple a of people bit. out there that I work with. But really, you know, the heart of Vermont is filled with fabulous little private ateliers great designers. There's just some wonderful people in central Vermont area and they, they reach out, you know, a lot of them travel many miles to get to where they're going to make some beautiful because of the like destination weddings, destination weddings are huge in Vermont. Yeah. So you said you're not growing like hundreds of varieties. What are your core crops that you, from like spring to fall? So I start out with uh, anemone and ranunculus I was doing sweet peas until our Delia farm. Yes. Bailey has banged it out of the ballpark and he is growing gorgeous stuff. So why would I just go to him? You just, you just said, I'm going to concentrate on what, what oh, I can do. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the thing is, is that I'm always looking for more rows to plant. So, you know, I, uh, that was now, an easy choice. Yeah. So now I'm just going to do more anemone and ranunculus mm-hmm. and I'm delighted because unfortunately I'm one of those people. Um, that really needed to cordon my sweet peas. I did Mm. not want to just grow them, and I wanted perfect, straight, long stems. That takes a lot of time, and so now I'm freed up to cause trouble somewhere else. (laughs) So you do have a... uh, You're growing anemones and ranunculus undercover. You have some kind of structure. I am. I have uh, have two, two tunnels that are high tunnels. They're New Englander style greenhouses. Um, and they're 30 by 40 each. And I had to, I, I could have had one big one, but I wanted to break them up and make a central courtyard mm. that was very much easy to access mm. to my workshop. Mm. I, uh, it was, it was a big thing that I learned through, uh, um, 
oh gosh, so much reading about mm-hmm. making sure that you're lessening the number of steps <clears throat> right. to get to where you're trying to You're being to more do. efficient. So everything's very tight. Yeah. If I had a quarter of an acre under production, I would be surprised. Okay. We are a femto farm. Now, femto is the tiniest possible measurement. You've got micro, you've got nano, you've got pico, you have femto. F-E-M-T-O? Yeah, it's tiny. I love that term. It's it's a tiny little farm. And (laughs) interestingly enough, my husband said, honey, you'll never be able to grow enough stuff to actually make any kind of money. And, but I know how much you can get out of a tiny space. So the other thing I had in mind, not only did I have who I wanted to sell to, but I wanted economy of space. I wanted it to be tight. I want it to eventually be something that I can pretty much run almost independently by wow. myself. So everything is under woven ground cloth, um, drip irrigation on timers, tight, weeded, clean edges. It's a. It's unfortunately very, um, very dust free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's why well, you say unfortunately, because people come over, you know, other flower farmers come over and they, they, they see it and they go, you know, Jesus Christ. Liz. Yeah. You're you so know, anal. Jesus Christ. And it's like, yeah, I guess maybe I am, but I've got to tell you, I am able to take care of my rose very well. And I do it pretty much organically. Yeah. You know, I'm able to walk up and down my rose and spray compost tea every Monday morning Everything's right where it should be. I know where everything is. And that's what you can do when you mm-hmm. have a small family of flowers. Also, okay. also you when, when you built it, you put this infrastructure in place from day one. You Absolutely. weren't having to try to go jerry-rig it after the fact. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I got you off track. On right, so Jean Martin Fortier okay. is my hero okay. when it comes to how to use economy of space. Okay. And just like the Chinese, like he says, you know, if you've got fertility in the soil, you can plant them a little bit tighter than normally expected. I've had no problem with planting things So more intensively, yeah. More intensively. So I started off with the anemone ranunculus. It was sweet pea, um, but I've got some other things going on. And this, I've kind of kept this sort of a secret, but I decided that I loved David Austin Rose's. So I put David Austin roses in my high tunnels in a zone four in in Vermont, and I've got some Superwoman. zone six zone six roses. Wow! Inside these tunnels, and they are doing great. Um, you know, I was able to buy right right through David Austin mm-hmm. through the wholesale division. Easy to do, everybody. All you got to do is have at least one hundred roots, and you're good as gold. And you can get them in batches of five of each each variety do you need a nursery license i think for that um no oh okay no all i use is my uh my uh, ien okay that's my 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 number that yeah, i yeah. use because yeah. i don't you know i've got an employee but yeah. uh you don't need a wholesale so how many roses do you have right now about 85 okay and in, they in, they in in two rows okay. two double rows of roses wow. how's that two double rows of roses oh say that 10 times yeah blah, blah, blah. So you, I, working with designers over time, it seems like, and also being a de- landscape designer yourself, you right. have this um, sensibility about design. You probably um, are uh, growing specifically the colors at the palettes 
Absolutely. And the varieties that you know will sell. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I hate to say it, everybody, but it is ivory, white, blush, soft pink. But, you know, pops of pops of bright pinks and the dahlias are completely out of control when it comes to colors because everybody at the time of year will take any They're dahlia. expecting that, yeah. Absolutely. So after the anemone and ranunculus, then it's tulips. So I've grown tulips outdoors for years, thousands of them. My only complaint is, is that the tulips are pretty much done right when the weddings are taking off. So I've been working with, and I'm, I've got a plug, um, Emily Von Trapp. Okay. Um, I just did a, uh, a tulip crate growing workshop with her and I've oh. learned how to use oh. tulips and grow them in crates. Wow. Much easier than people think it is. And so I'm thinking, okay, so I can extend my season with the crate grown tulips and stop, you know, I can I can time them. They're, they're completely timeable. And then get them a little later. Get them earlier oh, and later. Oh, so right. they can they can be shoulder season crops and they can also be a little bit later than the season that I'm used to mm-hmm. growing outdoors. Mm-hmm. So this year I'm not growing, well, I am growing outdoors, but I've reduced my numbers and now I'm going to do some in crates. Wow. So and then can I, I just stop for a second. Yeah. As I talked about, we talked about Von Trost. When I I had Tom from Mountain um, yes. Green Mountain yes. Wholesale on the podcast, and he said that the, he's buying some some cut flowers from the Von yes. Trapp family farm. Yes. So, how, are you selling to them or buying no. from them, or just they just you got this workshop? Ex- yeah, Emily is actually you know actually I've got to say you know in Vermont we have a lot of flower farmers. I know all of them, mm-hmm. and they all know me, mm-hmm. and you know we're a clan, we're mm-hmm. a good clan. And I think that that's kind of how we should all be right. in the industry instead of being competitive and pecking at each other, you know, just being supportive right. of each other. Right. So I'll go to local flower farmers to get material that I need. Mm-hmm. They come to me for material they need. And that's the way it ought to be. Yeah, that sounds um, cool. So Emily's a great teacher for, you know, that method, that type of thing of growing things out of season. And everybody needs shoulder crop. Absolutely. Types of things. Absolutely. And uh, that's cool. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that because I, it had come up earlier this year and I was intrigued to know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an iconic family name. Iconic and lovely, lovely people. And Tom does buy a lot of material from them. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Okay. So So then after the tulips, then I I move into peonies. And of course, during all of this harvesting and craziness, in goes thousands of lysianthus. Um, you know, I grow uh, specialized spray delphiniums. I don't mm. do the tall ones. Mm. I use the kind that you can use in bouquets. So the right scale. Exactly. Um, I love asters, mm. particularly the tower series, mm-hmm. and particularly the chamois, which is just the color too models. gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, I've got um, foxgloves coming in. You know. But now the roses, interestingly enough, I got bare root roses. I popped them in in mm, April, March, April. Yes, in April. And within six weeks, these things were stemming up with these bodacious, cabbage, beautifully scented, perfect roses. And they started just banging them out. And I literally was cutting them and selling them. And it got to the point, and really for the entire summer, 
every single stem that I had was spoken for weeks in advance of them even arriving. Yeah. So you cut them all, and I learned how to cut them properly. Um, I'm really surprised that you got your productivity so quickly because I I had the same experience. You had the same experience, right? Yeah. Yeah, when you get bare root roses, all of that energy is packed right in those roots. So within a very short period of time, you're going to see them flushing out. And the next thing that happens is they start banging out the long stems that the flowers will come on, and they come at the very ends of the stems. Oh, so that's what you're talking about, needing to figure out how to coax them to to keep doing that. The the thing that's interesting about that is, is that everybody wants long stems, but people don't realize you don't cut a an eight inch stem at the end of a long rod and leave that long rod hanging out there in the air thinking, Oh, I'm going to get more laterals from that. Oh yeah. You'll get laterals, but they'll be six inches long. So I learned that what you do is you go all the way down and you cut that stem darn near close to where it came off of the main branch. Okay. Even though you're going to have some throwaway there. uh, Oh, yeah. It's just a stem. Yeah. And what happens is because you're feeding your roses, which is absolutely imperative, and you're watering, which is even more imperative, because if you don't know this by now, people... Um, your fertilizer is sitting in your soil and the only way that the roots can take it up through their little straws, their yeah. little roots is in, in water. Yeah. You know, they slurp up water full of fertilizer. People don't realize this. They fertilize, they put down compost tea, they do everything, but they don't water. So, so you they have to kind of have this hand in glove thing. Absolutely. And you've got to keep on going. The more your flowers bang out, flowers, you've got to give them fertilizer and water and they'll keep banging out fabulous stems. So I cut them down. I count usually about one node above where the junction they came out of the main root or not the main root, but the main branch that was the big branch from the previous year. And before you know it, out comes another bud and another long, long stem. And again, the flowers right at the very end and you cut it and then you go down and you cut that bottom. Wow. It's a two. It's a two. A two stage thing. So you cut it to the length you want to harvest for the yes. bunch. And, and I like you're... a good. I like to get at least a good, say, fourteen inch stem. Wow. Because you're carrying that stem with all of the all the leaves and whatnot hanging off of it, being pricked all the way. Yeah. And then you get it into the shop, and then you strip then you the strip leaves it. and the and the and the uh, the thorns. And then I recut it, and then I put it into rose solution water. Okay. I had specific crystal product specifically made for roses. I don't quick dip them. I don't do anything else. But that fresh cut right into that water. And that's like a sachet kind of product? It's a a sachet, or you just get a big squirt bottle jug. Um, I, I did get some of the sachets, but I absolutely abhor all of the plastic involved in the little single serves. So you might as well just get the pump. Just get the pump. Yeah. So much easier also. So, um, you know, I, I, that's how I do it. I drag them all in. I cut them all. They're not on water. They sit on my counter. I get all of my tools. I get my water prepped. And then I strip them all, and then once they're ready to go in the water, I sit and methodically hand clip each one, pop them in the water, let them sit for about an hour, readjusting themselves, and then pop them in the cooler. Wow. And those roses 
I swear to God, they're not like the roses you get, you know, and they're dead in about four days. These things just sit there in that cooler and they can wait and wait and wait, sometimes upwards of a week. And then they go to weddings and they just are perfect. And Liz, are you cutting them when they're pretty? No. Some of them, you know, I look at them one day and there hasn't even been a petal leaf, a petal lift. You know, the, the buds are just sitting there. And then you wake up the next morning and they're practically fully blown. And I, I cut them, yeah. put them inside the cooler, yeah. and they hold. They wow. hold beautifully. And they're big, substantial, beautiful, beautiful um, roses. So this is a unique niche for you in that all these, you said you wanted to sell to high-end florists. Yeah. They're the ones who can um, pay the price that's fair for right. local roses in Vermont. right. Well, so what I found is I look at the Boston exchange rates, mm-hmm. and this year it was four ninety five per stem for a David Austin rose. Wow! And I sold mine for four dollars a stem because you know, come on, really? Yeah. And well, so you're you're, com- you're you're more of a of a boutique bespoke grower than a yeah. commercial factory. Yeah, I would say my flowers are special. Yeah. They're not just run of the mill any old thing. Wow. They're, they're grown specifically for a specific market and they are perfect wow and so the the price allows you to put a little more of that like high touch labor into absolutely that's exciting yes i sing to them i sing to them are you going to try to add more or you yes i'd like to get two more rows i don't want to become a rose farmer because i there i love flowers too much to just be exclusive yeah but i have to be honest with you for me Going in and finding a fully blown rose, what I'll do, and it happens many times during the summer, is I'll just pick that one big bowlful right off, bury my nose in it, stick it in my pocket, and wear it for the day, and then I pull it out when I want to smell it. For me, the rose, every rose smells different. That's every your cultivar smells different. Yeah. I also, when picking the roses, the higher petal count gives you the best smell. Mm. Um, so I, you know, so I've, I'm always checking the difference between the smells. And interestingly enough, people say, wow, how do you do it? You don't have bugs. Everybody has bugs. Everybody's got bugs. But because they're in the greenhouse, and I can say this about the dahlias, I can say about any flower in the greenhouses, I really look at them very carefully every single day. Yeah. And you'll find that when something like an aphid comes along, they're, they're going to be on the actual bud. And it's a green bud. And once you see those aphids, you don't, you don't stop um, and, and, you know, walk away. You stop and walk into the workshop. You load up your backpack sprayer. And I usually hit them with something like safer soap or something like that. Something that's low. Yeah. You know, they don't need much. You wash all the oils off their little bodies and they shrivel up and die. But you've got to follow up four days later specifically. And that's where researching helps. Because if you learn the reproductive cycles of your bugs, you know how often and when to spray. And you just never end up with huge breakouts. So you're, you're, you're knocking out the offspring of the parents right. that you got on Monday. You're going to go back and get the, the yeah. offspring on Thursday or And whatever. you know, yeah. you know, aphids are born pregnant. Yeah. They're all pregnant. Every one of them are pregnant and they can explode. <laughs> so depressing. <laughs> they can explode very quickly. Yeah. Um, so, so you just have to really stay on it. Yeah. I'm all about the IPM and, yeah. and making sure I use the lowest possible 
uh, pesticide I can. Yeah. I also make sure that if I can, I spray earlier in the morning or later in the evening so I don't have to worry about bees or, or right. whatnot. The beneficials. Yeah. Exactly. I love all, yeah. most insects. Yeah. But, That's uh, smart. It just makes me think of you as being a really, like, at one with your, your crops and, like, you're really observing. And Oh, yeah. And that's the beauty of a tiny farm. Yeah. When right. you have a big farm, you can't see everything. There's no way you could do it. So for me, it's sort of like that's the touch about my particular flowers is that each one, I'm watching you. Yeah. I am watching Mama's you here. and I can't wait for you to open up and I'm, you know, yeah. I'm pretty much out there. So uh, you, were, you alluded to the fact that you also have, by then... The Lizzie's are going. They're yep. in the ground. Yep. That's another big crop for florists, huge. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. huge. And I, I am in particular enamored with the voyage, the, the you know, the tetraploid, ruffly-edged, mm-hmm. giant, tall guys. Oh, the people uh, are just go gaga over because yeah. they don't really know what it is. Yeah. And, you know, it's they're Japanese-created, um, and, you know, the J- Japanese are the bomb. Yeah. When it comes to being able to develop extraordinary floral quality they've got it going so i I love that and you know bailey is out there in japan looking at what's new and hopefully putting that into his lineup i think that's what his goal is is to bring to cut flower farmers something really uh extraordinary and different that you can't find through many of the other suppliers yeah we had Bailey on the podcast about, oh gosh, a year and a half ago when he was just getting started with Farmer Bailey's Plugs. And um, yeah. it's, in a way, I think it's like you, the way you're approaching your business is that um, flower farming, or in his case, selecting or brokering with an eye for the customer who is the professional designer. Right. Not for the farmer's market customer necessarily. Exactly. I mean, if I were growing for farmer's market, I'd probably go for Echoes and, you know, Mariachis and all of these other types of easy Lysianthus. But, you know, usually my client base wants something that's extraordinary. Right. Something that's for that big venue um, where it's very special. Do you, is are dahlias your big end of season crop, or do you also do chrysanthemums? You know what? I tried chrysanthemums and I failed, mm-hmm. and I, I really abhor failing so mm-hmm. much that I don't set myself up again. Mm-hmm. So do what I, you're good at. Yeah, I do what I'm good at, and I'm I'm really more looking at bumper crop, ranunculus, and anemone before yeah. I would look at doing chrysanthemums because yeah. I think it's a Cause win-win because you, you can kind of get them started late in the or do you, when do you start your your corms. I start my corms usually in March. Oh, okay. You know, early March. Okay, you're not like me in Seattle. I'm going to plant my anemones. You know, yes, in the pot in pots and raised beds. No, later I literally on fall. I, I start mine right off in 72 trays mm-hmm. and then get them right out as fast as I can while it's cold. Interestingly enough, and it's funny that you should ask. Because I'm a geek, I I literally was taking soil temperatures in my high tunnels all winter long, and even with 20 below zero happening outside, my soil temps inside my high tunnels never got below 31 degrees wow. Fahrenheit. Wow. So now my eyes are open. And now I'm thinking, okay, Elliot Coleman, you know, I'm going to use your growing high tunnels with 
low tunnels inside mm-hmm. and see what I can do. Because yeah. I think and that's that all been like developed for food crops and you're going to try it for flower crops. Everything's been developed for food yeah. crops, you yeah. know? Um, and, you know, there's so much that can be done. Ooh, I can't yeah. wait. So I'm very excited about it. And <laughs> because I'm thinking my interior greenhouse temperatures was about 20 degrees higher than outdoor temperatures. But I think in low tunnels inside... You'd add another... Another 20, degrees. maybe. Yeah. Wow. So... You're not heating your greenhouses? No. Okay. No, I refuse to use, you know, any type of fossil fuels right, to do right. that. I want to save that for all my yeah. driving so I can drive around endlessly, <laughs> waste gas that way. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like... I mean, you that's essential is you've built your transportation strategy and because yep. the florists need you to deliver to them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So... Um, I'm just, my head is spinning with all this goodness. I, I'm going to consult with you separately about it's my so David exciting. Austin Roses. Yeah. All, everything's so exciting. Yeah. I love lecturing. I'm still out there lecturing, you know, yeah. so I, you know, I'd love to give workshops and, uh, and teach. Is and it have, primarily to flower farmers or the garden crowd? I teach or? to anyone who wants to come. Now, two, two years ago, I had the uh, docents of the Museum of Fine Arts. These are the ladies that do all the beautiful floral designing mm-hmm. all around the museum. They reached out to me and they said, can we come to your farm for a dahlia workshop? Mm. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to teach them? These people are, they're goddesses of, of floral design. And um, so it included food and they, they, just, An they, experience. Just, they just wanted to know about me. Uh-huh. And they wanted to walk around a flower farm. And they went to talk and, about that life yeah. of yours and that I they admire. all of those dahlias mm-hmm. for them. And I learned, I didn't have to teach them a thing. They just wanted a fabulous visit. And we had a great time. And I learned so much from them, watching them. Every single one of them worked with pretty much the same material. But every single one of the cash pose that they put together was fabulously different from each other mm. and just beautiful. So that was good. Mm-hmm. I've got people, I don't advertise what uh, we offer as far as an event space is, but we've just had people find us through Instagram. Yeah. And this Reach year out. we had a couple of, uh, we had a, a couple of uh, bridal showers and then I've done little succulent garden workshops for them as part of their bridal shower. And people want to do something more than sit around in some kind of stuffy building and drink cocktails and have something to eat. They want that kind of physical connection exactly. to growing, right? Exactly. Do you feel like if you've got these examples of successful experiences that you've offered kind of in response to custom requests? Do you think you'll ever formalize that and, and become more of a education center? Because you are kind of a one-woman show right now, right? Yes. I mean, I am a one-woman show, but, you know, I've got such a breadth of knowledge. I'm a horticulturist, a degreed yeah. horticulturist. I, uh, Be nice and I'm, to also, share. I'm also a stand-up comedian. Okay. Um, so usually my lectures are uh, filled with all types of funny things. <laughs> I'm picking up and on that uh, yeah. a little bit. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's, I love educating. I love watching people have aha moments. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we're, we're actually looking at moving into having more events at our space Mm -hmm. and we've, you know, we're insured for it. 
you know, and we well, love to be able to offer people a really good time. And our property is so charming. Oh my gosh. The next time you come to Vermont, I have to. we have a guest room. So, oh. you know, it's a beautiful little old place. Well, tell everybody about the maple part of Maple Flower Farm. So my beloved husband, Corey, is a, he is building, as we speak, a big, giant uh, sugar house. Uh, sugar all by house is, and that's sort of a thing in Vermont, sugar right? Sugar house is a thing. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's a tradition that goes down hundreds of years. And he, so he's doing it the old-fashioned way with wood. Um, and, you know, he will use um, not pails because it's so time-consuming, but he will use drip lines. He will not use vacuum. Okay. Uh, so he's going to go for the micro lines. And, to uh, to tap the trees. To tap the trees. Okay. And he'll be certified organic. And being certified organic is wonderful because even though everything is already organic out there in the maple tree groves, um, it's all about standards, not over-tapping small trees, how you clean your lines, how you respect the woods. It's all about the health kind of, of the sustainable practice. Ecology. Yeah. Exactly. And I only wish that certified organic was easy for cut flower farmers, but it's not. No, we won't talk about that now, Yeah, but you know, um, you can still grow organically in spite of it all. Yeah. But Um, he's going that direction. So he's he's going that that direction. So in fact, Corey named the farm maple flower farm. So somewhere, somehow it just sort of magically happened that we both have our two loves in the name of our farm. But, but you, he named it five years ago or so, right? He did. Okay. Before we really became, we had to, uh, we wanted to, uh, uh, register our business with the state of Vermont. Mm -hmm. So we, we did that. But, uh, at the time, the idea of starting maple, uh, maple business, maple syrup business was kind of, it was in the um, back of his head, something he would do someday. And now he finally got to the point where he said, you know what? I'm doing it now. So this entire summer has been dedicated to building this. In, this is an extraordinary sugar shack. And I have all kinds of ideas. I mean, there are some old guys in Vermont who have been sugaring for years. All of them have amazing stories. Right. I would love to see a circle of these wonderful gentlemen sitting around just telling telling stories and jabbering about mm. maple syrup because it's fascinating stuff. And the old tech way versus the new tech way. Is, oh, the old yeah. tech way. Yeah, the new tech way, I don't know, sucking the life out of a tree just is not for us. But are the many trees, people are doing that. Are the trees all on your land? No. In fact, as soon as we started uh, putting up the sugar shack, everybody in the neighborhood sort of stepped up and said, would you like to tap our land? Would you like to tap our land? I'll, I'll let you tap my land for a couple gallons of syrup. So it's a we real have, community-based thing. We have many people in our little neighborhood that are just, and they're all big landowners, so everybody's got land. And uh, Wow. It's just sort of a, uh, I, I want to keep saying lucky and magical, but I believe that when you have an open heart, that things just come and fall into your heart. You know, things yeah. come to you. And yeah, I agree. That's what matters. Yeah. I'm excited for the time when you'll have um, the the... I know you don't want to do CSA subscription, but some no. kind, somehow you're going to pack the package 
that your your maple syrup with flowers because I want to experience those together. Yeah, I've actually the first thing I tried to find or source was uh, maple syrup bottles that had maybe just a sunflower sort of a mold. Mm. No such animal exists. There's no flower out there, which would mean that we would have to make it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought you were going to say find a maple syrup container that has got a wider mouth so you can make arrangements of flowers in it well but mostly they're small necked right well heck no there's so many people out there just putting them in wonderful um you know atlas canning jars oh i mean yeah you can get them with wide mouth canning jars that's true they come in all kinds of bottles these days um and you know tins but I really like the idea of glass. Yeah. You know, I think it kind of goes with the old fashioned way of doing it. Yeah. Hey, before we wrap up, oh, this has been so great, Liz. And um, I'm just so glad we finally got a chance Me to do too. this. Um, given your early history as the early president of the Cut Flower Growers Association of Vermont, by the way, does that group exist anymore? No, they, they fell, they went under. You because know, of the it, changes. It ran for about, I believe, six years. Okay. I was president for two years, and I've got to be honest with you, I was responsible for something like 280 signups in the state of Vermont. Oh, my goodness. And I was answering phone calls around the clock from everybody. And this was like total volunteer job, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Non-paying job. But, you know, if someone comes to me with a question, I'm going to give them the time of day. So I... So anyway, I, I I sort of yeah. backed away and was glad to let it go. Um, but now but it's yeah. come, you've come full circle in a I've way. come full circle. Yeah. It's all very familiar to me and like a dream come true. And the, the reason people were growing cut flowers 20, 25 years ago uh, was just because it made sense, not because there was this strong sentiment among consumers for local product probably no, like there is I now, think right? I think that there is a common thread that is happening right now that happened back then is that a lot of people thought it was money for nothing and chicks for free mm, mm-hmm. a lot of people thought that flower farming is just an easy peasy way to make a lot of money and uh you know <laughs> I, 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 maybe wait, I'll wait. be the first one to tell all of you <laughs> that ain't true <laughs> Um, so I had so many people that thought that they were going to be making $5 per stem of monkshood. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it just doesn't like, happen. So like the, the, the lore or the myth, the, the yeah. bad legends about flower farming kind of yep. got a lot of people curious, but then they, they flamed yes. out. Yes. And I, back then I felt horribly responsible for people feeling like they were going to get rich quick and they weren't. And many were very excited about voicing to me their disappointment that they weren't rich quick. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that's weird. Yeah. But now I, I would imagine the, the consumer interest in Vermont Grown, or even among these designers you have who are serving couples who right. want to get married in Vermont, there's a little bit, I mean, I would say, I would imagine that's part of the, of the appeal. Well, I hate to, you know, I hate to sound like a Vermonster, okay? <laughs> but, you know, the entire farm-to-table thing, all of that started in Vermont. Yeah. I mean, Vermont was the very first place that had a really strong sense of, of uh, consumer-based agriculture, mm. direct from the farm to the people. Mm. Farmers' markets you know, happened pretty much first in Vermont. And that particular time period 
was when all of that was happening and somebody had the good idea, let's do, I was growing fresh cut flowers for sale before there was a council mm-hmm. right. and they just tapped me. I happened to be on staff at the state college. I was an adjunct instructor. I was running the greenhouses there and they just tapped me yeah. and I said, sure, why not? Yeah. And it ended up being this big deal. Um, and, and some so, of that sentiment, some of that sentiment is also driving demand now. Absolutely. Even though there was a, a departure from flowers for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And it should be. It should be coming back. It should be coming back to us. You know, we have such a beautiful, beautiful, dynamic country. Mm-hmm. This country has phenomenal land. And we have people that have the spirit for entrepreneurship. Yeah. So why not? Yeah. Why not grow flowers? Bring back the 70s. Bring them back. <laughs> You know, stick flowers in the ends of those rifles. Let's do it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Oh, you're really painting a picture of Vermont. (laughs) Will you share some photos of your flowers and your farm? I will be delighted to. Oh, that would be so great. I will be delighted to. Liz, thank you so much. Thank you, Deborah. What a treat. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. much for joining me today for this very special conversation. Liz's joy and passion are truly contagious and I can't wait to visit her. P.S. There is an Airbnb at Maple Flower Farm, so that's a tempting invitation. I think the most compelling message from Liz is that we can always reinvent ourselves. As she says, dream an old dream. Take heart from this lovely sentiment. Meeting Liz in person to record this interview was such a treat. The face-to-face opportunities to connect with and learn from one another is at the heart of Slow Flowers and our Slow Flowers community. In fact, it is one of the top-ranked reasons for attending the Slow Flowers Summit from our our past attendees. I mention this because we announced the 2020 Slow Flowers Summit venue and speaker lineup earlier this week. You'll want to follow links to all the details at slowflowerssummit.com and tune in next week for our bonus episode on December 2nd, where you'll meet some of the key people involved in the fourth annual Slow Flowers Summit, which will take place June 28th to 30th, 2020 at the Filoli Historic House and Gardens just outside of San Francisco. This is location change from our original plans, and due to some scheduling and logistic issues, the move was necessitated. I couldn't be happier to partner with Filoli. You are invited to join the fun and the creative experience. And as I said, you'll want to check out those details in today's show notes. Our next sponsor thanks goes to Farmers Web. Farmers Web software makes it simple for flower farms to streamline working with their buyers. By lessening the administrative load and increasing efficiency, Farmers Web helps your farm save time, reduce errors, and work with more buyers overall. Learn more at farmersweb.com. 
The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 550,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. Our next sponsor thanks goes to Arctic Alaska Peonies, a cooperative of family farms in the heart of Alaska, working together to grow and distribute fresh, stunning, high-quality peony varieties during the months of July and August, and even September. You can visit them today at arcticalaskapeonies.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging on to iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Music